everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily. We have some, well, it's a unique market commentary today. Uh, we're going to step away from the capital markets and actually from uh, the exploration projects and turn it over to academia. Uh, happy to be welcomed in by four students in the graduate program of the Business of Economic Geology class, uh, which I believe is close to wrapping up, if, if not wrapped up for the semester, uh, very close to where we publish the Mining Stock Daily podcast outside of Golden, Colorado at the Colorado School of Mines. Uh, four students are, are joining me today to talk about a specific project that they had researched and developed over the last semester. Happy to be welcoming in Mr. Mitchell Grimm, Ms. Robin Swank, Ms. Sherry Atencio Church, and Mr. Paul Henderson. Uh, we're going to try to do this, uh, keep it as organized as possible, but first to the four of you, uh, I know the graduate program at the Colorado School of Mines is not always easy, so congratulations on another successful semester. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we are going to start with Paul. Uh, Paul, I'm, I'm going to turn it to you because this project that you conducted was really interesting. Uh, it sounds like each individual in the class, so there was more than just the four of you, each individual in the class was responsible for one metal, researching the markets of the metal, and then also attributing that to a company, whether it be an actual producer or an explorer. So if you, if you could kind of give us the summary of what this project was about and why it was unique. Yeah, um, so we were supposed to look at a commodity, um, a metal, um, and then also choose a company, like you were saying, um, related, you know, that was in this sphere. Um, so the whole purpose was to look at this company and in, in the end, kind of give it a, a rating, um, either buy, sell, or hold. So we analyze these companies and their performance um, for the past five years, um, five or six years. And then we were, took into consideration their public announcements, world events, um, and the economy. So kind of an overall macroeconomic um, look at it. Uh, metal price and cycle. Um, and then also we were putting in our geologic perception of the, the, the mines development projects that the company um, had in place. Uh, and then took a look at their production levels, operating costs, capital costs, reserve base, stuff like that. And then one of the biggest uh, pushes this year was to look at their ESG performance because that's the, you know, really important up and coming thing. Um, so that was sort of the main focus of our project. Um, so we each chose a commodity and then we, we each work with Steve, uh, Enders, our professor to choose a company. Most of us chose it ourselves. Some, some were told, uh, not to do certain <laughs> ones, uh, <laughs> cause I think Steve wanted us to focus really on companies that were just focused in that metal, say copper, cobalt, lithium, uh, whatever it be. So that's pretty much the the main um, overview of, of what we did. So when you say commodities, are you talking more of the base metal complex? Did you focus on precious metals such as gold and silver and, you know, palladium and platinum? Or was it mainly like the industrial the the base metal complex it, it was it was a whole mix we we fo we had some people focus on gold um platinum and then we went to industrial we went to battery metals um 
So it was, we even had someone do uh, coal, which was a new one, because this is an economic geology class. So usually we don't do the energy sector, but this year mm-hmm. someone decided to, to try that out. So hmm. that's a different, you know, any, anything surprising from that, from the coal, from the coal presentation? Yeah. Um, I think Robin actually might, she's nodding her head. She, she's yeah. from the energy sector. So she might have actually uh, picked up a little bit more on that. Uh, the surprising thing, I think, in considering coal as sort of our anti-commodity because it is so out of favor ESG-wise, was that the gentleman who presented coal, who was an Indonesian who works in coal mining, recommended that we buy. And he analyzed Peabody Coal, who had just emerged from bankruptcy and <laughs> was performing fairly solidly. So that was a really interesting finding, looking at that commodity just in the context of where it is societally and how it's performed. So Robin, you come from energy professionally, uh, but you also, uh, you worked with Nickel and a company uh, that we are familiar with because we just interviewed the CEO here just uh, uh, two weeks ago. Uh, But that's Martin Treed from FPX Nickel. Mm -hmm. So FPX and that project, the Baptiste Project up in BC is what you focus on. What was some of your research things that you found new and interesting and kind of, you know, the overall outcome of what you presented. Okay, well, well, let me start with my background just in brief encapsulation. I am a petroleum geologist by education and practice. I have 25 years in that sector and a lot of natural gas, which is, was replacing a lot of coal. And I grew up in coal country, so I have a solid background in coal too. And it's always had a soft spot in my heart. And when I had to choose a company that was a pure nickel player, I almost had to go instinctively to the juniors to find somebody who was fairly focused in that commodity narrowly because it's produced with so many other different commodities. And FPX caught my, uh, caught my eye as I was researching just because they seem to be putting a lot of press releases out there and they had an original idea. They're a Warite prospect, it's the Baptiste. And that is akin to what I did for part of my career, which is wildcatting. So you basically go out and you're looking for something that no one else had found and you can hit it big and it can be wonderful and it can be great or it can be nothing. So you really have to believe in what you're doing and your technical work has to be solid. So that's what I I found admirable, the amount of technical work that had gone into this. And I talked to Martin as part of my research and he was very helpful, but I also talked to Dr. Peter Bradshaw who did a lot of the preliminary geologic work in this area and it sounded very solid and everything that they've done to date indicates that it's going to work. So that was that was really pretty neat. Uh, the nickel the nickel market is especially when it comes to you know EV and battery technology. You know it's not just simply just nickel. There's types of uh, other there's different types of nickel that obviously we like one more than the other, especially for battery manufacturing. Oh, yes. Can can you talk about you know, did you, were you aware of this before you jumped into it or what are the things that really caught your attention? Oh, heavens no. (laughs) Before this class, nickel was a coin that I had in my wallet. (laughs) So, 
learning that there were uh, class one and class two nickel, and not only that, but there was a nickel laterite, which had uh, implications for what type of pricing. And just that the way that ore was processed could have an impact on the environment. Uh, for instance, the nickel laterites that go into class two nickel have an incredibly higher environmental footprint. Uh, the class ones, which are coming at a premium that goes straight into the battery market, drove the market for a while until it was flooded with the class two. Now we have nickel mat coming into the market, which seems to be the latest permutation that's coming out of the uh, kind of Pacific area on the laterites. And that's also very carbon intensive, but you have EV companies that need access to this metal for their batteries. So Tesla is partnering up with uh, the Goro mine in New Caledonia, which is laterites and it's a nickel matte product. Uh, but you also have commentary by uh, writers for the Northern Miner indicating that there's going to need to be an overall add to the nickel market. So you're going to need deposits like Baptiste coming online, and they're going to need to come online very quickly. And they can when they get through their environmental work and all of their permitting. And it seems like it's going to be a fairly streamlined production process and the metallurgy is consistent with what's needed. So. Uh, let's stick with that new energy metal. And I want to ask, go to Sherry over here because she was focused on graphite and uh, the, her company that she did some deep diving into was Mason Graphite. This is a company I'm not familiar with. So Sherry, I'm wondering if you, uh, if you can share the same thing about the research, why graphite introduced, uh, in, you know, you were intrigued by graphite and then what about Mason that really was applicable to this? Well, it's interesting um, why I chose graphite. Um, I, I initially had chosen gold. And as people were selecting minerals, I started thinking, oh my goodness, there's a myriad of, of research and uh, data available on gold. I bet that's going to be complicated. So <laughs> I backed off and went, um, okay, you know what? I like graphite. I love the way it looks. You don't hear a lot about it. You just don't. Um, and so that's why I chose graphite. Um, as it turns out, um, uh, you know, the discussions in class were, you know, is try and stay away from the foreign, foreign countries for choosing your company because sometimes you don't get good communication and you can't get your research done. So um, Canada is one of the top producers of graphite. So um, I went with a Canadian company, Mason Graphite, uh, that kept coming up on all my internet searches. Um, so uh, as one of the top, I think it was one of the top five at the time. They are not in production of graphite though. They are an exploration company at this level. Um, they've had a few hiccups in getting their mine operational, should have been up about a year ago, um, but, but wasn't, isn't still. Um, they've got a brand new board of directors as well as of December, 2020. So um, there's, there's some upset. I think there's some transition issues and things of that nature. I was never able to talk with anyone at Mason though, as a result of what's going on, I think, internally with their board and the delay on their on their shovel-ready project, which was the Lagara uh, deposit up there in northeastern Canada. Um, they have some of the purest graphite coming out of the ground in the world, but a lot of what they have are um, a majority of their volume is small flake and not the larger flake that's worth more money, um, more value. Um, so they've got, um, they're developing several different um, levels of projects. They're basically an integrated mining company who's got the Lagara project, 
Then they're also doing value added products um, out of a pilot plant uh, to take advantage of that low value, small, um, small grain, small flake graphite that they've got. Um, and then they've got another program for tailings uh, valorization. Um, their goal here, 140,000 tons of tailings a year is to turn that around into usable products, uh, minerals um, such as uh, the uh, quartz and some of the silicates and um, gypsum, um, I, for, I forget what else. So they're taking, they're, they're, they've got a great approach. Um, you know, I just wish they would actually get into production um, because they really have uh, quite captured a lot of areas of the market. Uh, different um, collaborations that they have are guaranteeing them future income down the road, um, such as they're going to be the um, uh, main supplier of Nano Explorer, who's got this wonderful tech technology to turn graphite into graphene. And so Mason has collaborated with them to be their sole supplier of the low value graphite they need for this uh, process. Um, so things like that. They've, they've positioned themselves really well if they can just get into production. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I was, I was curious, you know, on top of that, I mean, what did you learn about having a good team when also a good project? You know, it sounds like you had some difficulties getting in touch with the management team. Obviously, there was some transition going on. Um, yeah, but really, um, without without the team, you can't get a project really where it needs to be. Correct. And the team that was in place prior was an absolutely incredible team. Um, the the Nod Gascon, I think, is his name. Um, Thirty plus years in the graphite industry, um, and had been watching the Lagarov deposit um, for quite some time um, before Mason acquired it. And so once they did. He hopped on board with Mason as their CEO, their chairman, and guided that entire company to where they're at right now through April of last year. That's when he retired. Um, and that's when things started kind of tanking. They put Lagara on hold, the new board did, or the, the original board did with a, an interim chairman, um, very uh, angry stockholders as a result, um, um, and, and a couple of other things that they did that, that, that um, produced a dissident within the, the shareholder pool of people who managed to talk everybody into a whole brand new board with him, the new the dissident as the chairman. That just just took effect. So nobody's really sure yet how this team's going to uh, manage. But it was quite clear that the previous team uh, was was incredible in what in their in their knowledge in their experience. Do you feel, I mean, what did you learn about the graphite market? I mean, obviously in the last few months, we've seen a lot of speculative money come into graphite, obviously again on the back of battery technology and the electrification of everything. Right. Uh, you know, similar with what Robin has studied with nickel. Uh, a lot of companies that are graphite explorers have had incredible runs in their market caps. Uh, do you feel like Mason has maybe missed an opportunity? Well, yes, I kind of do. The, 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 I'm, I'm... It's too bad that they postponed um, Lagaroff last year um, because, again, they were shovel ready. They were basically ready to start. They've got their plans in place and everything. Um, and, and it was just really a shame that that happened. Um, uh, I did not know much about graphite at all before I started this project. I, you know, like kind of like Robin. Oh yeah, pencils, graphite, pencils. <laughs> you know, that was the extent of it. Um, so I, I was really quite blown away with the research and all that graphite is involved with. It's a, one of the top 35 critical minerals out there now. 
Um, and, and then the EV battery boom um, and how it's playing into that. Graphite was pretty, was pretty stale um, until I think maybe about 2005 when it started going up and, and the realization of how else it could be used was known. Um, you know, it peaked up there with everybody else in that super cycle, I think it was 2014. And it's been coming down since then, slowly going up though, but coming down in regards to Mason, um, it's all over the board right now. And I think that's because of their board. So my recommendation was to hold on any stock um, purchases. Um, but overall, um, I see huge potential here, especially for this company, because of how they've positioned themselves into all the different niches of the graphite market. So, yeah. Thank you, Sherry. Uh, let, let's turn it over to Mitchell. Uh, Mr. Grimm, you have been following what I, I believe still remains America's only rare earth mine in California, the Mountain Pass, well, Mountain Pass Project, but it's uh, MP Materials now, uh, formerly bankrupt company, but now is back up and running. Uh, why rare earths? Why were you interested in rare earths? And, and what did you find out about MP Materials? Yeah, so rare earths, why I decided to choose them. Um, so there actually is supposedly another mine. It's called Round Top in Texas that's ran by an Australian company. But I've talked mm -hmm. with a couple individuals uh, who have actually came to speak to our class about that. And they say steer clear. Um, that's what I'll, uh, I'll say about that. Uh, I truthfully am not totally sure. I looked a little bit about their balance sheet. Um, it was looked impressive, but uh, the reason why I chose MP materials though, um, one, I knew the extent of uh, what rare earths are. And I know the extent, uh, especially, especially in the last administration uh, with Trump is uh, really pushing <clears throat> the um, getting away from the dependency that we had on China on that. Because in reality, I, had, I put a list together when I gave this presentation in the class. And so MP Materials produces three different rare earths. So there's 17 in total. And half of them are split into light rare earths and half are heavy rare earths due to their electron configuration. But they produce cerium, lanthanum, and neodymium and uh, praseodymium. And in essence, the main objective is magnets. Magnets can be used in anything um, from cell phones to uh, tomahawk missiles, like guided missiles. Um, and it is pretty, it's not just magnets. You can use it for polishing, night vision goggles, communication, but in essence, the big sort of topic is uh, national security. And back in 2008, China realized what they had with rare earths and they prices for NDPR, neodymium, praseodymium magnets went from, uh, I capped out just below $250,000 per metric ton of unrefined metal. And which was interesting, that happened because Japan took or arrested a Chinese fisherman who was in Japanese waters and he was asked repetitively like to leave and didn't. So they arrested him and then China put like an embargo for I think it was almost seven years on rare earth 
uh, imports or exports to Japan on rare earths. Um, but let's see, I mean, I guess somewhat got ran off on a tangent there. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it's this whole, this whole story. So, uh, rare earths are, they're in everything we use nowadays, especially in Western society. And as the, as, uh, developing countries are coming on board and whatnot, rare earths are one of the most vital components to having that success infrastructure wise. Um, when it comes to like communication, internet, I mean, even when it comes to running alternative energies, it's a huge, huge, like you don't have rare earths, you don't have alternative energies, period. Mm-hmm. Um, Mitchell, I'm, wonder, I'm wondering if you could, I'm wondering if you could, um, uh, take a stab at the the balance between it. We've talked about the national security issue when it comes to rare earths and obviously manufacturing and, and what we need for continued developed society here in the Western world. But at the same side, especially with rare earths, the other side of the argument is the economics mm-hmm. of rare earths. Mm-hmm. How do you? How were you able to address the economics versus the national security issues? <sighs> Economic wise, um, it's tough to, uh, I guess I can give my opinion, then you can look at balance sheets and numbers and whatnot. But the really fascinating thing is specifically this deposit here at the Mountain Pass Mine just outside of Vegas um, is world class, 8% weight percent per ton. And which is to make a rare earth mine economics got to be about two weight percent, which is, I mean, it, this, this deposit staggering. Multiple people have tried to produce it and haven't been successful. Why? I mean, they have it there. Economics. I mean, they're right next. Literally, it's right off I-15. I mean, transportation, it's maybe a hundred miles, maybe from the nearest shipping port. I mean, it's, it's, it has sort of all of its uh, this and true in the mines more or less a chemical plant than anything, but the economics is fascinating. Um, especially when the price is controlled, um, you know, by China, if it was a different country, but because China's abundance on the economic side of things, it definitely makes it extremely difficult because currently China is the only place in the world that has the infrastructure to find is what is called rare earth oxides uh, into refined uh, metals that can then be used to manufacture magnets and whatnot. So mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting and that's the objective here with MP, they have a three stage business plan. Stage one was just get the mine running, get it producing. And stage two is to build a refining process so they can refine the rare earth oxides or the REOs on site so that they cut out China. And then in essence, that would eliminate China. But again, most magnets are manufactured in China and that's their Mm -hmm. stage three. That's sort of their end goal is finding a partner. And if they're not able to find a partner when it comes to magnet manufacturing here in the States, then they will go ahead and do that. They've been able to 
turn their stage one into a positive cash flow um, stage, which is huge. Yeah, and I want to I want to yeah. piggyback there and ask. A, I'm going to table a question about getting to that next stage based mm-hmm. on the U.S. demand, and we we keep hearing about people from the federal administration. You know, for the last couple of administrations, talk about the U.S. supplying our own material to get to advance manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So, so everybody can think about that for a few minutes, but I do want to go to Paul here and go back to Paul because you focused on a company that uh, I think is quite interesting. It's, they have the only uh, cobalt refinery in North America based in Ontario, and they have a pretty interesting cobalt deposit in Idaho. That's the company First Cobalt. Uh, Paul, uh, again, why cobalt and what what did you learn through this? Um, well, first off, I chose cobalt uh, just because it's a it's an interesting mineral. It's been kind of having a lot of ups and downs, um, skyrocketed 2016 to 2018, and then mid 2018, the cobalt prices totally tanked. Um, and I I remember following that um, back then, but I wasn't sure why everything was happening. So I wanted to kind of look into that a little more, um, and and cobalt is essential still um, for batteries, uh, especially electric vehicle batteries. Um, a lot of the bigger rechargeable batteries that they use in 5G power banks, which is a huge driver. Um, and I, I think a lot with this push um, with a new administration, a lot of European countries, even China, there's a big push now um, to get into rechargeable, uh, more efficient energy use. Um, especially with rechargeable batteries. So cobalt plays a huge role in that. Um, Even doing my research, there's still no good alternatives that are ready to come online soon. So um, cobalt's still gonna be a big part of battery manufacturing. Um, So that that was sort of the reason why I chose cobalt. Um, And then first cobalt, I chose that exactly from what you were saying. Um, It has the only refinery in North America um, to process cobalt hydroxide um, and actually, you know, sell that to battery manufacturers um, here in the US and in Canada. Um, I know there's another plant in Finland, but that's, that's in Europe. Um, there's really nothing here. Um, I know Jervois is trying to get something going up, um, I think in Brazil, but that's still a long ways away. Um, so that was a really interesting factor, um, going on. They're still, they're about a year out. Um, they're finishing up their finalizing their permits for the, for the plant. Um, and then they're hoping in next end of Q2 this year uh, to start start their actual construction. Um, they have it fully financed already, so it's ready to go. Uh, they're planning late 20, uh, yeah, 2022 is when they'll start the actual production um, or actually processing at their refinery. And they already have um, <clears throat> feed deals for 90% of their throughput um, with Glencore um, and China Molly. So that's already, uh, you know, great. They're going to start off the bat. And then they actually have um, an offtake agreement already uh, with a company uh, for 100% of what they produce. So 
it's it's seeming like a really good business. Um, for me, I thought, you know, because I, I have a background in mining. I was a mine geologist for six years, and I kind of like to see something, a company that has some some sort of um, production online or soon to be online. Um, and so, You want a business strategy. You want cash flow. Right, right. So, uh, you know, they, they started out, first Cobalt started out as just an exploration company um, in Cobalt. And with this refinery, they can actually start getting some cash flow to um, continue exploring their main uh, exploration project that they have is is that the Idaho copper or Idaho cobalt belt is what they call it um and that's the Iron Creek deposit right now it's still pretty small they have uh inferred uh their inferred res um resource is what two 2.6 million at uh, a 0.28 uh cobalt equivalent so still not a lot, um, <clears throat> but it's actually a similar to a head, uh, sediment hosted type deposit. So um, the mineralization goes along strike um, and down dip. And there's, from what I've read, there's still uh, the resource is still open along strike, and they haven't fully drilled it out. So there's quite a bit of potential um, to find more there. And so that's they're hoping um, once they can kind of get the refinery running, then they can go back and focus more on the exploration side. Um, and, and see, I, I know Gervois is also um, in the Idaho Cobalt Belt. And so it seems like there's quite a bit of interest in that area. Uh, two follow-up questions for you uh, based on that your research. I was curious with the conversations you had and the research that you, you went through, do you feel people feel like the cobalt market is more sustainable now and less volatile than it has been in years past? Second second question, for a North American cobalt market with a refinery such as what First Cobalt has in Ontario, do you feel like those companies are going to be more reliant on offtake agreements than they are on pure exploration and development in North America? I might as well just start with the the second question, because it leads into the first question, I think they are reliant on offtake agreements. I think that's the big driver um, to stabilize the market for uh, Western companies. So, a lot what I, from what I was reading, 2018, um, well, really 2016 to 2018. Uh, there was a lot of hype behind cobalt. Everyone was thinking, okay, you know, EVs are coming online. It's going to be great. What happened in the crash was um, there was really more hype and there was less um, EV production, less electric vehicles, you know, out there. Um, and then also the DRC, which is, I think they produce around 70% of the world's cobalt. That was 2018, 2019 numbers. Um, about, 15 to 30% the uh, WEF, the World Economic Forum estimates about 15 to 30% is artisanal mining. Um, and these guys can actually ramp up production super easy uh, when the price goes up. So that was another big thing is they just started flooding the market in 2018 um, with illegally mined cobalt. Um, 
And actually kind of interesting, I calculated that just off of like USGS numbers, um, global numbers, and they're able to, illegal artisanal miners are able to outproduce like five of the other top cobalt producing countries in the world, just, just wow. in DRC. So they're yeah. able to just ramp up. Um, but the problem is, is that it's it's illegal mining that involves child labor. It's dangerous. You know, there's pits and underground mines that collapse. There's no regulation. Um, so that really has put a lot of pressure on the tech companies, on the EV companies like Tesla um, to source their cobalt for their batteries elsewhere. Um, and about 80% of cobalt is actually refined in China. So they send it from the DRC to China. Um, and that's about 80% of the cobalt is from there, uh, refined from there. And then a lot of battery production is in China. Um, but there's really not a lot of QC on that. There's not a lot of um, checks on how ethically sourced that cobalt is. So uh, right now, the big push is to um, actually have ethically sourced cobalt. So I think with the economics now, what we're seeing is sort of a kind of two two markets going on is sort of this free market that's um, kind of shady in where, where cobalt's being sourced. And then there's more of the ethically sourced cobalt. And I think that's where North American companies are coming into play. Um, if the refinery, right now the refinery is sourcing from Glencore um, in China Mali, and they're actually sourcing it from um, Tenke Fungarume and then KCC in the, in the Congo, but they're actually making sure it's just from there. Um, and if, if First Cobalt and other companies can get more um, North American cobalt mining or Australian cobalt mining up on, uh, online, um, then they actually have their own market there. Um, and it won't, it'll be sort of separate and it won't depend on the DRC mining. So um, I think they'll, companies will be paying a premium for that. So yeah, yeah. so it, it kind of, it's separating out. Um, and especially right now, a lot of car manufacturers are starting to um, push new models. They're coming out with new EV models a lot more than in 2018. So I think yeah. things are actually starting to come online slowly but surely. Uh, so that's a good segue into that one question I did want to put on table that I, I mentioned to Mitchell about, but I'll open it up to the group. And I really wanted to ask about, okay, if, if North America, and we'll just use the United States because we're all based in the United States right now. Um, if we are to continue to advance the U.S. creating its own supply of raw materials for the new uh, generation of infrastructure, it almost it seems like it will require processing infrastructure on the mineral side here to get to that, to reach that goal. Do you feel there is appetite on the federal and social level and the and the economics and the money available to start building some of those refining processes, which typically would be sent overseas to refine? That's I mean, a big I, question. It, it is. Yeah. I To start, I believe the appetite is there. I mean, just look at our consumption. I mean, just that, just, just the lower 48. You know, the consumption is astronomical. Um, 
is there an appetite on a federal level? Uh, I would put a huge question mark next to that. And why I would do that is, um, I don't know if this has an appetite that they're willing to uh, look at. And what I mean by why, that why, is- why, Yeah, why do, you, why do you say that? Uh, look at the average GDP of the United States and what this has to offer. So much of the infrastructure has does not exist here in the United States when it comes to the end, when it comes to the consumptive market. So much of that over the last, I guess you could say a couple decades has moved over into Southeast Asia, Asia, you know, Asia minor, stuff like that. And to get that back here, I mean, that is, it's doable, but let's just say bureaucracy can't be a part of it because it won't happen. I mean, they, this mine has the ability to supply the needed materials that we so desire here in America. But when people, when you get on the grand scheme of things and it comes to specifically like an energy transition or whatnot, it's, I personally think we jumped the gun on that one. I, Anybody else want to chime in? Yeah, I could, I could chime in just really concisely. Um, most of the nickel that I saw coming from the North American continent, the exploration is taking place in Canada. And certainly the Canadian juniors are all over this. And they are, they have the backing of friendly provinces and they have a much more, maybe not a more lenient regulatory environment, but a regulatory environment that is set up for them to be able to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. Whereas a lot of what I've seen from my own experience in oil and gas in the US is that certainly there are demands that are there, but the public absolutely does not want to see it in their backyard and they want to have no impact from it. And it, it's, uh, from my own perspective, it's incredibly hypocritical. One of the reasons that I looked at nickel is because I read a paper about its ability to sequester carbon dioxide in tailings. And so certainly there are a lot of environmentally green practices that can be done to make this incredibly environmentally sustainable. Dare I say sustainable mining, which I believe FPX features in their press releases. So. There are Canadian companies that can do this, but I think the U.S. is lagging a bit behind in their willingness to to own what their impact is and what they need to do. That's well put. Well put. Uh, my last question. I know we, we are going quite long here. I promise I said 20 minutes and we already doubled that. So I apologize. But thank you for your time. My last question and I'll throw it the group for everybody. Uh, what a semester to take on a commodities research project as we're starting to see all these metals just really fly in their charts and the demand and we have supply crunches, we have higher demand, uh, obviously all in the back of COVID, which, uh, you know, globalization has been hindered as well because of all this, not to mention the political aspects of globalization that has its feet to the fire. Um, you know, 
I guess looking at the entire, holistically looking at this entire metals commodity spectrum that we are in now, where are like where, where do you see this continuing to have legs, and why are we in a super cycle? That's that's the uh, code. That's the uh, code names on Wall Street. Commodity super cycle. Are we there? I guess I can Robin, jump in. Robin shaking her head. Paul shaking his head. <laughs> yeah. I'll I'll jump in really quick because um, I'm a little hopeful, and then you guys who are shaking your head, you can you can talk about it. <laughs> um, I just kind of looking at a lot of the metal prices. I think COVID actually helped um, in a way to sort of reset a lot of things. Um, it seemed like some metals were kind of on a downturn uh, beforehand, and then. Um, in March, it kind of, there was a panic, a lot of things, we, you know, they dropped, um, kind of a, you know, like a market correction for metals a little bit. Um, and then of course things started skyrocketing, um, like gold, uh, copper even. Um, but I think, I think it kind of gave a new shift, um, in where we're focusing, um a lot more focus on the technology sector on batteries um you know on more environmentally friendly technologies and i think it, the prices at least you know with cobalt and a few other things um they're they are jumping but they're not just crazy i think copper is actually really high but that might have to reset a little bit but i think we are on sort of a slow rise um in, you know, with with a super cycle, and I don't think it's you know going to shoot up. I don't think it's going to be amazing um, right off the bat. It's going to be a slow, slow kind of rise. But I think uh, right now is a great time for companies to to get in and take advantage of that. Sherry, what do you think on this super cycle idea? I I don't I don't I don't think so because when it comes to graphite, um, there. They're showing there's going to be a depletion coming up here within about 20 years or so. And part of that's because uh, there are a lot of new mines in the market saturated right now, but that's not going to remain the way it is. Um, and and they're, they're showing a near set, what was it, 600% increase in graphite production they're going to need to keep up with the demands um, within that time span. So uh, granted, that's far, far ahead. I, I just don't. It seems to me like it's too upside down, too up and down right now for us to be heading into another super cycle. Um, and, and I guess we'll have to wait and see. Some of the players in the graphite market are powerful enough that they can actually control the market whether or not by whether or not they produce or don't produce. So, um, you know, it, it, it's really hard to say, I think, in my realm. Robin, what do you think? You know, I, I think we are headed into a super cycle. Now, nickel is a bit more confusing just because of the uh, influence of the big players. I mean, you got, um, I did my presentation and I recommended a strong buy for nickel and a strong buy for FPX nickel in particular, uh, just because of the commodity that they're going to produce. But um, in talking about the nickel bulls, which for the Canadian juniors is the bull moose, there is a nickel bear which is the panda bear from China. <laughs> and then there's also the influence of the uh, Komodo dragon from Indonesia. So it's gonna come down to how blunted is that rise gonna be by what can be produced out of uh, the nickel laterites for nickel mat. Okay. 
Mitchell, uh, Mr. Rare Earths, what do you think of this idea of a super cycle when it comes to rare earths? Uh, it'd be great to be optimistic, but to be a realist, uh, I am questionable on that, uh, especially um, when it comes to the, the energy sector. Um, I am, I guess you could say, more focused on oil and gas, but I, I just think the whole the whole thing is just very fascinating. But when it comes to this, when it comes to producing energy to meet just baseload demands, um, I truthfully think that we're in a situation where we're trying to build a plane while we're flying it. And that situation, it's, I would love to be optimistic because it'd be cool to see this stuff uh, go on the rise. But in all reality, I just feel like it's a, it's almost like a land grab, but for raw materials country-wise. People are just stockpiling. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. And like, they're just filling warehouses with no like end goal. They're just like, just grab, just get the material. Like, we'll we'll figure out what to do with it later. And it's like, okay. I mean, it would be awesome to see this because this would bring a lot of opportunity and very skilled uh, labor to the United States that would, would need to be met with demand of individuals who could fill those spots who aren't necessarily uh, I guess like educated, but they could become very skilled in this and it would supply, you know, a, a good standard of living. It's, it's just when it comes down to the cons the consumption, it's tough to meet that global demand when consumption is rising at magnitudes, you know, you know, a, a much greater pace than, than what we're able to sustain. So I feel if this is a super cycle, I guarantee you it's going to, it's some good foreshadowing for the future, but it will last, you know, very short. It is not going to be this drawn out. I feel like it's going to be up down, Yeah. you know, so. All right. A lot, a lot of different ideas, a lot of different thoughts here. Uh, but f you know, thank you again to all four of you for taking some time here this Monday to uh, share with us and the listeners, your research and the presentation, uh, really fascinating. A lot of things I did not know. And I I'm happy that we get to share this with the mining stock daily listeners. Um, if anybody has any follow-up questions for either, uh, Mitchell, Robin, Sherry, or Paul, you can shoot me an email trevor at clearcreekdigital.com i will pass those questions on to these individuals and with the email so they can be in touch um but uh, really fascinating and again congratulations on another successful or digger semester thank you we're all very proud of you trevor thank when you, is trevor. this going to be broadcast we are going to air it this afternoon oh heavens <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to wrap it up there so i can get to editing and uh take care everybody appreciate you coming on here on the mining stock daily podcast thank you the information presented should not be considered investment advice mining stock daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decision.